Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When you lead from a base of expertise, your confidence and credibility are derived from your knowledge. People follow you as a result. However, when you take a stretch assignment and span outside of your comfort zone, leading requires a different approach, one of influence, inspiration, compromise, and courage. We are here to talk about how to take that next step and keep going. Now, here is your host, Wanda Wallace. Welcome to the show. Today, we're going to talk about inspiration and authenticity. Well, not exactly. It's a topic that a lot of people care about, this inspiration and authenticity, yet I find that we don't often stop and really ask, what is it that people need to do in order to generate inspiration and to be authentic? Now, while that's not our direct topic today, our direct topic is one behavior that I think is really key and that is underutilized in terms of generating inspiration and being seen as authentic, and that is storytelling. It's something we're seeing being mentioned more and more in the corporate world, but it's still a skill we haven't quite learned to adopt or gotten comfortable with. So today we're going to show you why it matters, and then we're going to show you how to engage people with this methodology. My guest today is Murray Nosel. Murray, Dr. Murray Nosel, is co-founder and director of Narrative, which is a communication consultancy. And he sees every situation and every interaction as an opportunity for listening and storytelling. He's taught storytelling for over 25 years in more than 50 countries to over 10,000 people. And he believes we all have a story to tell. Um, Murray is also part of the teaching faculty of a number of universities, including the program of narrative medicine at Columbia University College of Physicians and surgeons, and he's taught storytelling at London Business School, at City University of New York, at the New School, Barack um, College, Baruch, I think I say, the and on and on and on. There's a long list here. He's also worked with corporations as diverse as Walt Disney, Time Warner, New York's Habitat, UNICEF, Radisson Hotels, Twitter, Birchbox, and we can go on. Now, as if that isn't enough... Murray has also applied his listening and storytelling methodology in the theater to Two Men Talking, which has been on the West End in London and Off-Broadway in New York, and his film, Why Can't We Be a Family Again, was nominated for an Academy Award a few years ago. So, Murray, welcome to the show. I should also mention that the book that I'm advertising at the moment is called The Powered by Storytelling. So, Murray, welcome to the show. Many thanks for having me on, uh, Wanda. I'm so happy to be here. I'm thrilled. I'm thrilled. I think this is an important topic. Um, I say this to people when I'm working with them about how powerful a story is, and yet I find folks have such a hard time just really doing it. But before we jump into how, you started life as a clinical psychologist. How did you get to doing this work on storytelling? Well, thanks so much uh, for for inviting me to tell you that story. And let me just say right up front, Wanda, that what I love so much about um, this topic of out of the comfort zone and the idea that we are extending beyond what we currently know uh, and understand ourselves to be as experts is that we don't even know what's going to happen right now, do we? I mean, this very podcast or, or interview that we're doing right now is to some extent going to take us someplace that we can't even know right now. So we all ought to be sitting rather on the edge of our seats. And also why I say that to you is that I am about to tell you a story, yes, which tells you of how I got from clinical psychology into storytelling. 
But given this fact that I'm now speaking into your unique listening, I will tell the story in a way that I've never told it before. And underlying that is my basic principle that there is a reciprocal relationship between listening and storytelling. And just as a bowl gives liquid that's poured into it its shape, so does listening give storytelling its shape. So the very first thing that I want to say to the listeners out there is, yes, when you are faced with the task of telling a story, you might see yourself immediately in some kind of vacuum, and that's not how I see storytelling. What I see storytelling as is some kind of dynamic that's existing between you and the listener. And when you know that someone is listening and you know that someone is interested, that becomes the kind of safety blanket into which you can tell your story. So, Wanda, thank you for uh, providing me with this opportunity to tell my story and potentially go someplace that I've never gone before. Okay. So I started out life actually as a research psychologist. And um, why I want to give this as a quick preface is that as a research psychologist uh, uh, studying in South Africa, I was pretty much trained in a logical positivistic manner, which means that psychology was seen as a science and that my task was to take certain hypotheses and to prove them in the laboratory. And my uh, uh, research was into the area of creativity improvement. And I wanted to actually show that there were certain things that you could do that would improve your creativity. So I put people into a laboratory situation and subjected them to all sorts of experiments, such as putting them into sensory deprivation tanks. I measured their creativity before the sensory deprivation tank. I put them into it, and then I took them out and measured their creativity again. And that's how my research went along. It was done in the laboratory. Now, what happened was that one day, a um, a woman came into my laboratory, and she told me that she had been a political prisoner. Of course, I was in the era of apartheid, and she was imprisoned, and she wanted to tell me about her experiences of being put into sensory deprivation as a punishment in jail. Well, there was no place for her anecdote and her story in my research because my research was strictly confined to my experiment. And yet, given the fact that I was doing this experiment in South Africa, what she had to say was so incredibly valid and was such important knowledge for us to know what was happening to people when they were putting into isolation as a punishment. And so what I realized was that my research was lacking context. There was no way for me to actually describe or find a place for that context in my research. When I finally decided to go out of research psychology into clinical psychology, this was where I really discovered the enormous power of storytelling. Yet, I was trained in a very strict theoretical model. This was my new expert knowledge. My new expert knowledge was to get thoroughly trained in Freud's psychoanalytic theory, listen to the stories of my patients, and then interpret and analyze the patients strictly according to that method. So that became my new expert knowledge. There was no such thing as a story for its own sake. Anyhow, in 1990, 
I came to the United States from South Africa, and I no longer wanted to be a clinical psychologist. I wanted to be a playwright. And the reason for that is that I really wanted to be able to find a way to tell a story within a context, because context felt to me like it was everything. Well, um, I made it as a playwright only as far as my plays put on and published. I didn't make a dime, and so I had to go back to university. And this time, I wanted to go more into a group modality, and so I did my PhD in social work at Columbia University, and my minor was in anthropology, which was to really look at the way that cultures actually engage with one another. And the job that I got as part of my PhD training was at an AIDS program, a program for people who were dying of AIDS. This was the moment before the protease inhibitors, this miraculous cocktail came along that radically changed the lives of people with HIV. At the time that I was working with AIDS patients, they were dying. So I walked into this program, which was in the basement of a building in Brooklyn, and I spoke to my supervisor, and he said to me, now, Murray, you've got to remember, you are not a clinical psychologist anymore. You've come into this program to help the patients come to terms with the fact that they are dying, and you've got to give them anything that they need. You've got to give them uh, some emotional support if they need it, if they need help with housing, you've got to get that for them. If they need wheelchair access, you've got to find that for them, whatever they need. So I sat down with my very first patient, or clients as we called them in the program, and I apply my expert knowledge, right, what I know as a clinical psychologist. I begin to delve into what's it like for her to know that she's got this disease and that she is, there's no cure for it. Well, she rolls her eyes at me and she says to me, what are you talking about? What do you mean what's it like for me? Murray, have you seen what's going on in this program? We're dying, Murray. We're dying. What do you mean, how do I feel and what does this mean to me? What relevance does that have? Well, she was right. I looked around and I saw that indeed people were dying once a week, twice a week. Someone had died in the program. When I went to my supervisor and I said to him, look, I've got to tell you something. I don't know what to do with these clients. I mean, they are resistant to therapy. They don't have any insight and I don't know what to do with them. And he says to me, Murray, they're dying, can't you see? You are going to have to let go of what you were doing before it's not relevant. Well, with my expert knowledge stripped away, all these years of training I'd received as a research and clinical psychologist in these theoretical models, here I was faced with an emergency, an epidemic, and I had no idea what to do. In fact, all of us professionals in that AIDS program had no idea what to do. The doctors who'd been trained to cure people and save lives, well, they couldn't do anything. None of us could do anything. We were all faced with the same hopeless situation of people dying. And what I realized I could do in that situation was simply to listen. To simply okay. set aside all my expert knowledge and go into a place of not knowing. And then really asking them the clients, what do you need? What would be important to you at this moment in time? And to put myself into the position of the learner rather than the person who is 
legislating treatments and telling people what they needed. And what I did realize at that point, when I saw people's belongings being packed up into black garbage bags that no one came to claim after they died, I realized the one thing we all have we can leave behind is a story. And if I simply created a context for people to tell their stories, and if they could simply tell what happened to them without anyone interrupting or interpreting them, that they would be able to tap into their own expert knowledge of what it means to be them. And that's where I really discovered the profound value of local knowledges, that we all have expertise only in one thing, and that is how to be ourselves. And that if you want to help someone else, you need really to learn from them who they are and what they need. And uh, my, my clients in that program jumped at this opportunity to tell their stories. And uh, in 1995, when the New York legislators were threatening cutbacks to people with HIV, my clients went with videotapes of their stories, put those stories on the desks of the legislators, and then said, you listen to my story, you listen to what it's like to be me, and then tell me that I don't deserve services. And it's on the basis of those personal stories that the face of the HIV and AIDS epidemic changed not only in the United States, not only in New York City, but across the world. So this is where I really firsthand saw the power of the personal story to change the minds and hearts of people and how as a clinician who had been armed with expert knowledge on how to relate to people, when that expert knowledge was stripped away from me, what I really had to do was just sit back, listen, observe, and find out and discover what was needed. Wow. I can only vaguely imagine what it's like to be sitting there not knowing how to help, to be assigned a task to apply your expertise knowledge and realize that all you can do is, in effect, be a witness to to listen to the stories. Now, I do know, I do fundamentally believe that when people tell their story, their personal story, that is what it takes to change hearts and minds, as you said. That's why I believe stories are so inspirational and why I believe we see people who are telling stories, telling their authentic, their own story as being authentic. Okay, I'm going to leave, Murray, that very powerful background and go a little bit into the expertise space because I'm interested in how. I'm interested in, as you listen to all those stories, and you said at the very beginning that listening is the vessel that holds the story, that it's a reciprocal relationship between the storyteller and the listener. So, is there a methodology that you use? Are there tactics that you think are helpful for getting people to tell their story? Yes, Wanda. And this now, what's happening right now, has my, my hands on my arms standing up because I'm having a connection here that I have never had before. And there again, thanks to your listening and thanks for the space that you're providing. So I'm going to go all the way back to that research that I was doing into creativity okay. uh, back at the University of Advertisement in South Africa in 1985. 
And one of the techniques that I, as we called it in those days, subjected people to was the simple technique of brainstorming. Now, the whole idea behind brainstorming is that you want to come up with a whole lot of ideas. And behind the process there is that you want to generate those ideas in the space of openness and non-judgment. If you're going to brainstorm to see how many ideas you can come up with uh, related to a particular problem, and you start judging and editing and commenting on every idea as it comes up, you will soon dry up all the creativity. So the point about brainstorming is that you have to keep this atmosphere of open listening and anything can go. And what I realized is that that's the kind of listening that you need to have when someone is telling their story, particularly their personal story. Because we are so afraid that people are going to judge us. For, uh, for our stories, or that they're not going to think our story is good enough, or interesting enough, or they might judge some aspect of the story. So the first thing to do is that our listeners have to be able to listen openly and without judgment. And what I first do before ever training a group of people, whether it's in an organization or across an entire culture, I first need to train people on how to listen to one another openly. And I let people know that listening and storytelling are mutually reciprocal gifts. I now give you the gift of my listening so that you can speak, and now you give me the gift of your listening so that I can speak. So when it comes to generating a new story that you want to tell to inspire others in your organization or even in the general public, I have worked with very, very successful politicians who have gone on to great political victories because they shared their personal stories. Even those people need someone at first to listen to them openly and without judgment. So that is the bedrock of developing your story. It's first making certain that you are doing this creative act in an atmosphere of openness and non-judgment so that all the memories that you have which are going to be constituting your story, will be able to bubble up in an unhindered way to the surface. Now, once you've done that, once you've established that listening space, now you can start thinking about what story is it that you want to tell. Now, the question that you need to ask there, which I've written around, around extensively in my book, is ask yourself the question, why story and why now? Why do I want to tell a story? And why is this the moment for me to tell my story? So you need to think about the reason that you're telling your story and what do you want to leave people with? Now, in some companies, the reason that you're telling a story, like in a pharmaceutical company that I've worked within, the scientific team want to communicate to the sales team why a particular product works as well as it does. And they have captured on the, uh, the relevance of personal storytelling. And one of the doctors in the research team doesn't know how to communicate the value of this product until she goes back to her personal story of her extraordinary father, who was a doctor in China, who died young and suffered from Alzheimer's. And if he would have had this particular drug, he would have carried on living and 
could have carried on being productive. When she told that personal story and when she connected with the emotions behind that story, the entire audience was left with no doubt in their minds of the value of this product. So you need to understand why you are telling your story. You are not just sharing your vulnerable personal story in order to be vulnerable. You're doing it for a reason. So that's the next really important thing is to know why you're telling the story and what your audience is and what you want your audience to come away with. And then you go into the process of crafting your story, which means going into your unconscious creative mind, into your memory, and finding those nodal, those seminal, those really important turning points in your life that are really going to communicate why this subject matter is so important to you. And normally these are the high or low points of our lives. So when you think about the story that I just told you now, really the turning point of that story was when I sat in my supervisor's office and said, I don't know what to do. And when I can identify that particular moment, then I can give that moment a beginning to set up the context and then I can give it an ending which shows how that particular emotional problem or dilemma was resolved. So essentially, we can learn the skills of how to craft a story so that it has a satisfying emotional arc. And the reason why we can all learn how to do this is that that emotional arc, that capacity of human beings to go from the beginning to the crisis or emotional turning point towards a resolving end is that it is hardwired into our brains. Our brains are hardwired to recognize and tell stories because they evolved to help us to create coherence out of our lives as a, as a direct function of our need to survive. We need to tell stories to teach the next generation how to survive. So we all know how to create these story arcs. This is not something that's only the specific talent of, of the lucky few. So it strikes me that the hard work is the beginning work, not the telling of the story that the hard work is creating this environment where people are indeed listening without judgment. And I think I agree with you that that's the fear, is that if I tell you, then there's going to be judgment about it. And then I have to really understand as the storyteller why I'm telling you this. What do I want as a conclusion? What's my point? What's my message? But to do that, I have to really look deeply within me to understand those, um, we often say in leadership, crucible points, pivotal points, uh, where the emotion is so powerful, as in your story. Yeah, those crucible points, that's exactly it. And those are the ones that often feel most tender to us. So it might feel counterintuitive. Why would I possibly talk about this in a professional business environment where I'm supposed to be all buttoned up and together. Why would I possibly reveal this thing about myself in that context? Yet, it's that very crucible point that you're talking about that the most potent learning actually arises. I think that's also the point at which we genuinely connect with somebody, which is why I think stories are inspiring. 
And I think it's also at that moment that we judge authenticity. We say they're authentic, they are genuine, because you get to that critical learning or crucible point. I think that's what we respond to. It's my personal view. Okay, we're going to take a break in just a minute. But before we do that, I want to talk for a minute about how do you create this environment where the listeners are listening without judgment. Now, I know we're talking about storytelling, but we could be talking about innovation or collaboration or brainstorming, as you said earlier, or you know any number of behaviors where we need this environment of listening without judgment. Do you have the secret sauce for doing that? Indeed, I would say that uh, the listening and storytelling method is, is, is grounded in exactly that. So the first thing is we have to create a dedicated time and space for this to happen. Don't try and do this kind of creative processing or try to, um, to discover your um, uh, story when you're sitting with your mate in the pub and having a couple of drinks. That's not the right time to do it. The time to do it is when you've actually calmed out, uh, carved out, excuse me, a specific time and space where you actually say this is a time and space that we are dedicating to the crafting and finding of stories. So that's the first thing. Then within that space, we don't want any interruptions. We don't want people walking in and out of the room. We don't want the phone going. We certainly don't want what happens, you know, almost as an epidemic at the moment, people turning over their cell phone every time it vibrates to, to check a text. You've got to make sure that this environment in which you are uh, excavating and crafting stories is pristine. And I could go back to my work that I did with the AIDS clients is that I created this pristine environment, which is to say that your personal story is something that is not everyday. It's elevated above the everyday. Some people have a problem with the word sacred, and they think that it has too many kind of religious connotations. But truly, my clients who were dying and telling their personal stories as a way of leaving something of themselves behind, they recognized their stories as sacred because their stories were synonymous with their lives. Now, if you are a research uh, physician and you are sharing your tender personal story, even with your sales team, you want to know that they are listening attentively and that they're not sitting and uh, multitasking on their computers and cell phones. So the setting up of the environment in which personal stories are going to be told has to be jealously guarded with, guarded with a kind of a warrior-like intention, like we are really going to guard this space. So that's really important. And the other way to, to, to keep that safe space is to give it a time limit. We are only going to do it for an hour. Because if you keep it uh, open-ended, the time, or if you expand it because someone's story is getting particularly intense, it dilutes the essence of this method, which is to say that story is something that is limited. It has a beginning a middle, and an end. So on the one hand, we're creating this wide open environment of 
non-judgment, non-criticism. And on the other side, we are sticking to a very strict discipline of telling a sequence of events with an emotional arc that has a beginning, middle, and end. So you've got to keep these two things in balance all the time. And then the other thing that is really important is that if I have an obstacle to listening to your story, if you tell me something and I suddenly find myself in a judgmental space with no capacity to listen because that judgment has taken over my mind, then I need to be able to tell you that I have that obstacle to listening. So on the listener's part, to be able to have the self-awareness to recognize when they aren't able to listen and to declare that to the storyteller is very, very important. So that the storyteller isn't picking up these kinds of nonverbal vibes that people aren't listening. So the listeners are actively engaged here. They are not just passively sitting around like doormats. They are literally feeling within themselves the real generative um, uh, potency of their own listening. So I would say that those are the main uh, sort of uh, points about how to create that space. But of course, the same thing could go for just having a meeting with your colleague. Someone's presenting a new idea. Someone's presenting their sales results. And if they're sitting there and presenting these results and you're multitasking or you're not listening or you're judging this person or you're comparing your results to their results and are unable to listen as a result, then you aren't fully present to what that person is saying. And learning has stopped and certainly um, you are, are, are not even beginning to approach the idea of not knowing or, or, or the capacity to learn that we're talking about here. I love that. It's a very simple thing you just said. That notion of not knowing is what opens the capacity for learning. You know, entering a state where I don't know. I think that's fabulous. Okay. Ooh, there's so much richness in that one. If I just try just for a moment to summarize what goes on in this one, in this, it's we are very, you are very much setting a particular context in a particular moment in time and in a particular way that holds attention between total openness, dedicated space, no interruptions, um, and a strict time limit. And I'm also going to gather a bit of a process that goes with it. So it's not completely free form, but also it's not so constrained. Anyway, I love that tension between it's open and at the same time there's a strict discipline. And then this third point, this notion that if I cannot listen, if I realize that I have an obstacle to listening, for whatever reason, I declare it. Because when I stop listening, I change how the person's telling the story. As we all know, we've seen that in meetings a thousand times. When you feel like you're not being listened to, you change what you're going to say. Completely right there in the moment. Um, and, oh, wow. Right. Wow. All right. We're going to take a break right at this moment. When we come back from the break, I want to talk a little bit more about this process of beginning to tell the story, to get to the emotional arc and to know how to get to the beginning, the crucible point, and then the resolution behind it. My guest today is Marie Nosel. The book, if you're interested in learning more, is The Power of Storytelling. And it is, the subtitle is Excavate, 
Oops, I can't read that title there. You're going to have to help me out. Crafting and Presenting Stories to Transform Business Communication. Yes. There we go. Powered by storytelling, excavate, okay. craft, and present stories to transform business communication. Thank you very much. I had too many papers in front of me. Apologies for that one. Um, we'll be right back after a short break. Business community's first choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. If you want more information on the articles, books, coaching, and seminars we offer, go to our website at www.leadershipforuminc.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum Inc., helping organizations get it and keep it. How is your work-life balance? In most businesses, no matter where you are positioned, there is always room for improvement. If you're an executive, learn insight about your business. Are you an employee? Learn how to better work with your team. Even if you're not in business, you can learn where your strengths and weaknesses can be played to their best potential. The Work-Life Balance with host Rick Morris can be heard live every Friday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Tune in to the soul of enterprise, business in the knowledge economy with co-hosts Ron Baker and Ed Kless. Ron and Ed will show you how to recognize that wealth is created by intellectual capital. It's all in the possibilities that we can create and that are created for us. These possibilities are destined to be discovered by human imagination and through the service of others, creating a brighter future for all of us. The Soul of Enterprise is heard live every Friday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel and simulcast at the same time on the Voice America Variety Channel. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. Leading outside of your comfort zone is a delicate balance. You need new skills and new ways of working. To reach the program today, send an email to wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. That's wanda.wallace at leadershipforuminc.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone. Welcome back to the show. With me today is Marie Nosel. The book we've been talking about is Powered by Storytelling. And Marie's company, if you're interested in knowing more, he's uh, co-founder and director of Narrative, which is a communications consultancy. Um, that Marie, it's been such a powerful segment. First, we're talking about your own story and your own transformation into the storytelling space. And, and you said that so clearly that when you came to this moment of saying, I don't know what to do, that that's the moment you became open to seeing other alternatives. And in fact, I think you've said when you go to a space of not knowing is the space in which you can actually learn and be open. And then we've been talking about the process of what it is to help people craft their story. And one of those is understanding how to listen and to listen without judgment and to create a space where people actually listen. So a time that's dedicated, a process where we're not going to be distracted and guarded jealously, and at the same time, a willingness to acknowledge if we can't listen openly. 
And then you said that what you have to do next is to start thinking about what story you have to tell and why you want to tell it and why now you want to tell it. And to do that, I need to dig in a bit to understand what were the critical moments for me, the crucible points for me, often the ones with the highs and lows in life and why those are relevant to what we're saying right at the moment. So, you know, for capturing what was a very rich discussion and could have been hours longer, I hope I did a decent job of summarizing that one. I think you've done a great job of summarizing it. Absolutely. (laughs) If anyone's joining right now, they are right in line uh, to continue the conversation with us. Okay. All right. Then I want to talk for a minute about this, um, how you how you get people to start thinking about why they're telling this story and why now. Do, do you have any tips for that one? I certainly do. So let's take an example, which I actually write about in my book, Powered by Storytelling. So here I am working with a very dynamic business leader, and he's part of the Condé Nast Publishing Group. And what's happened is that he, who had previously been leading a a couple of publications in the company, has been given the task of leading a whole bunch more publications in the company. So whereas previously he was in charge of a team consisting of 50 people, He's now got a team of 180 people, and he's got to bring them all together. And he's got to get them working together in a way that they are all reaching for the same goals in the company. He can't have people competing with one another or um, feeling, you know, sort of in a, in a state of fear over the fact that things have changed. Uh, and let's face it, in business and in life in general, we all have to deal with change and the inevitability of change. So he is having a large team meeting with his brand new team of all these people, and he wants to tell an inspiring story that's going to bring this team together and is going to really communicate to them what are the essential characteristics of team playing. So I sit down with him, and we're going to now start the process of excavating. And he starts telling me various stories of things that have happened at work with teams. And I'm saying, well, yes, I I think that's very good. That's very important what you're saying. But I don't feel like it's exactly a crucible moment in your personal life. And he's like, well, you mean my personal life? You mean my at-home personal life? You know, and yes, take me to your childhood. Like, tell me the most important thing to you in your childhood. Let's go to like these really important values, these very important, you know, sort of um, moments in your childhood. Well, what does he tell me? He tells me about his love for football. And he wants to be a football player. And he is uh, with his family and they're all sitting in front of the, uh, the TV and his mother's making her buffalo chicken wings and they're all watching their favorite team and they're rooting for their team. Okay, now I know what's important to this guy. And now through the process of excavation, we come on this emotional turning point. What happened is that he was part of a team and he was the big hero and all the girls in the village loved him and he was thrown off the team. 
Okay, now we've got something. Now I say to him, okay, I want you to take me into that moment. Imagine that this is a movie. And without telling me what to think or how to feel, without using any abstractions or commentaries or judgments, I want you to use the five senses to tell me exactly what happened when you were thrown off that team. Now, this is the essence of my storytelling method, which is to say what happened. And what I'm saying is that what happened is only a sensory fact. If you can't smell it, taste it, see it, hear it, or touch it, literally touch it with your fingertips, it did not happen. So I felt embarrassed, or I hate authority figures, or I couldn't cope with failure. That's not what happened. These are just internal thoughts and feelings about things. What happened is something I could see. Okay, so what happens? You know, the scoreboard comes up up at the end, you know, and his team has scored zero, and the coach comes up to him and says to him, you're too big for your boots, you've got to get off this team. And he runs out of there and he goes into the shower uh, in in his home and he just sits on the shower floor with the water running all over him and he sobs. Okay, that's his turning point. That's his crucible moment. Now what do we do to build the story? We go to the beginning and he's given me the beginning already by telling me how much the game means to him. So we know how much the game means to him. We follow him through his rise to become the captain of the football team. We then are with him and we know exactly how he feels when he tells us about what it's like to be thrown off the team. Now, how are we going to resolve this story? Okay, what happens next? That's the big question. What happened next is he goes to his dad and he says to his dad, I want to leave this town And I want to go to a different school because that coach sucks. I love the old coach and the new coach just doesn't get me. And he's, you know what? And the father says to him, no, you can't do that to your other teammates. You can't let the team down just because you've had a personal failure. You have to work to get yourself back onto that team so that you can be there for your fellow teammates. And that's what he does. And that is how he communicates to the team the value of team playing. And I can assure you that when he was telling the story to that team, he choked up quite a few times. And a number of people said to me they had never, not only had they never seen him like that before, but they had no idea that he had that capacity. This same person is now the chief business officer of Condé Nast. And so uh, not only has this approach to this incredibly personal, uh, connected approach, not only has it served him in good stead, but it has actually become his leadership style. And he's going from strength to strength with it. You see in that... That story, what team meant to him. It's not just words anymore. It's 
why it mattered and what kind of a team it mattered and what behavior he was looking for from other people and how far he was willing to go. And when you get that level of raw emotion, you can't help but believe it. Exactly. You use the word genuine. There's no question in your mind that this man is genuine. None. <laughs> he has put himself on the line. And trust me, you know, you know given what this topic uh, is about of, of the conversation we're having right now, he didn't know what the impact was going to be. He had never done it before. Yeah. He was going on, on uh, you know, he was taking a flying risk and he was trusting me. You know, he was tr- the listening that I was giving him uh, in terms of just encouraging him to go there and to tell me all of these things that happened. By the time he was finishing, finished crafting this story, he was so pleased with the product that he created. He started off with nothing, and he's now got a story. He's made something. And he knows that by sharing that thing that he's made with other people in the team, they will be able to reach into their own experiences and share their own expert knowledges and skills through their story. So one could say, in a way, that Craig was an expert at recovering from failure. Mm-hmm. He learned how to do that. Now, how often do we go into a, 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 an onboard training in a company mm-hmm. where there's a topic that's called how to recover from failure? And yet, we should all know how to do that. We should all know what to do. Yeah when the, the project that we've been working on or the proposal that we've been working on all that time is not accepted, what do we do then? Now, Craig holds the knowledge to that because he's experienced it directly. You can talk all the theory in the world about how to recover from failure, but when you hear his story, it's show, don't tell. You get it. Right, right. Did you um, did this process with Craig encourage the other team members to actually begin to tell their own story? I mean, did that happen within the team? Very much so. In fact, uh, he organized an offsite for all his managers. We all went off to this wonderful um, uh, place on Long Island, and we spent an entire day uh, where the rest of the team members crafted their own stories that they could then use in turn to share with their teams. And each one of those stories had its own answer to the question, why story, why now? So each person has to know for themselves why they are telling that story and why this is the moment to tell that story. I think, Maria, I think what I like about this so much as you're talking about it, I, I know so well the power of getting to that crucible moment and telling the transformation that's created in me and the knowledge that I've created, the understanding, the awareness I have just showing that in the story. But what I like about what you're doing is this notion of crafting it, that I'm not telling it raw for the first time when I go on stage. I may be telling it raw to the listener for the first time, but I have to now learn to tell it in a way that does give this arc that is genuine to the story, but it's also genuine to my purpose in telling it. Why this story? Why now? Yeah, that's, that's the third element, Wanda. The first element of the method is excavate. In other mm-hmm. words, you want to scour through your memory 
to find those crucible moments, as you call them. I love that word, crucible, you know, that crucible moment. The next is to craft your story. Yes, I don't want to stand up in front of a thousand people and tell a story if I'm winging it. Because if I do that, I'm going to tend to rely on all those generalities and vague terms that I tend to do when I'm just talking in my everyday shorthand. Your story is a piece of, of art that you're sharing. You've crafted it. You're proud of it. And you can pull it out of your pocket at any moment that you ever need it to share your story. You know, the origin story that I shared with you at, at the beginning of this program, I've told that story thousands of times. But every time I tell that story, I have to re-engage with it as if I'm telling it for the first time. I have to reconnect with the message. And in today's case, the why story, why now, is that I was talking to you. You've provided me with a moment, and I have to a- a- apply that story to talking about this concept of going out of the comfort zone and not mm-hmm. knowing. So, my story is ready to go. I'm not inventing it in the moment. So that, and here's the really important part, when I stand up in front of that audience, I can connect with them. It's no longer about me. You know, there's an old Tibetan Buddhist teaching, and it says that when you throw a ball to a dog, the dog keeps its eye on the ball. You throw another ball, it watches that ball. You throw another ball, it watches that ball. But I can guarantee you, as someone who grew up in South Africa and went with my parents to the game parks every Easter holiday, that when you throw a ball to a lion, the lion keeps its gaze on you. The lion is able to hold its gaze. And so when you are standing in front of an audience, your lion's gaze is on that audience. You have found this story in your body, because that's where your memory is. That story is embodied. It's inside you. You've crafted it so that you know exactly what to do. It's like following a map. You know your beginning. You know your middle. You know your end. And then you are ready to share it with your audience. And then it's just about giving them the gift of the story. And when it's, when it's well-crafted, your, story, your audience are not going to relate to the story as, oh, he's just, you know, hooting his own, uh, you know, tooting his own horn kind of thing. They will get whatever the message is in that story for themselves. And that, of course, was Craig's story. He had crafted it. He knew what he wanted to say. He knew why he wanted to say it. And so when he stood in front of that group of people, it was just about giving them this lesson through the story, and he's making eye contact with them, and he doesn't have any notes because the story is it's there, and it's not learned off by heart, and it's not rehearsed. It's just there at his fingertips. And remember that every time you tell that story, it's going to be a little bit influenced by whoever's listening. So even the story that I told you today, Wanda, I've never told the story that way before because you were never listening to me before. So there's always that dynamic that's going on. And so the presentation, and for you to be able to feel fully confident in presenting your story and sharing it with others, you've got to know what it is. It's got to be there for you. You, It has, preparation is key. You 
do not go onto stage to share a story without knowing of what story you want to tell and how to tell it. Okay. I can't imagine, we've got just a couple minutes before we're going to end. I can't imagine how powerful it is for a group that are going to now work together to do something extraordinary in their company, to go through this experience of crafting, listening to, excavating, presenting their stories. Their stories about why they're on this team, their stories about what they want to accomplish, their stories about whatever is relevant. I can see why that is a hugely powerful um, bonding experience, if you will, for a team. Yes, indeed. Because when you're doing this all together, when you are doing this in the presence of one another and you realize that you're all part and parcel of that listening environment, it's like you're rooting for one another. You know, one, um, one uh, a young man that I was working with recently in Bucharest in Romania, well, somehow he just didn't trust the elements of the story that he was telling. And, you know, although I said to him, you've got a very powerful story here, he kept on feeling like he needed to add more details for other people mm-hmm. to understand what he was talking about. And I and the rest of the people in the organization kept on saying to him, no, we get it. You don't have to tell us anymore, you know, yeah. because our brains are hardwired for this stuff. You know, we, the listeners, can connect the dots. We don't need every single thing explained for us. Yeah. And eventually, he, he, I, we, I said to him, look, eventually, I said, you're going to have to just trust me on this one, Okay. You just, you just tell the story with these particular details and tell it to that audience and trust me, that is going to work. And the rest of the people in the group said, yes, just trust us, it is going to work. Well, he told that story to a thousand people at the Power of Storytelling conference in Bucharest. And there was a thunderous applause at the, at the end of, this, uh, of, of the uh, story and he was, he was just delighted and the audience was just Blown away by fabulous. The next, That's the fabulous. Next more, the, uh, are we? Uh, do we have to end? I'm going to stop you because otherwise I'm going to get you cut off without any closing at all. Here, what an incredible story, Murray. Um, this has been an amazing conversation, and I'm sorry I won't have enough time to wrap it up properly. My guest today is Murray Nosel. I think you get from listening to this the power that stories, when you excavate, craft, and then present them, the power that is to transform communication. Murray Nosel, the book is powered by storytelling. Murray, thanks for being a guest today. Thank you so much, Wanda. And join us next week for another episode in Getting Out of Your Comfort Zone. Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week. Oh, 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 oh,